Chapter Eight of Janet's Repentance from Scenes of Clerical Life by George Eliot. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Bruce Peary. Chapter Eight. The next day, Friday, at five o'clock by the sundial, the large bow window of Mrs. Jerome's parlor was open, and that lady herself was seated within its ample semicircle, having a table before her on which her best tea tray, her best china, and her best urn-rug had already been standing in readiness for half an hour. Mrs. Jerome's best tea-service was of delicate white-fluted china, with gold sprigs upon it, as pretty a tea-service as you need wish to see, and quite good enough for chimney ornaments. Indeed, as the cups were without handles, most visitors who had the distinction of taking tea out of them wished that such charming china had already been promoted to that honorary position. Mrs. Jerome was like her china, handsome and old-fashioned. She was a buxom lady of sixty, in an elaborate lace cap, fastened by a frill under her chin, a dark, well-curled front concealing her forehead, a snowy neckerchief exhibiting its ample folds as far as her waist, and a stiff grey silk gown. She had a clean damask napkin pinned before her to guard her dress during the process of tea-making. Her favourite geraniums in the bow-window were looking as healthy as she could desire. Her own handsome portrait, painted when she was twenty years younger, was smiling down on her with agreeable flattery, and altogether she seemed to be in as peaceful and pleasant a position as a buxom, well-dressed elderly lady need desire. But, as in so many other cases, appearances were deceptive. Her mind was greatly perturbed and her temper ruffled by the fact that it was more than a quarter past five, even by the losing timepiece, that it was half-past by her large gold watch, which she held in her hand as if she were counting the pulse of the afternoon, and that by the kitchen clock, which she felt sure was not an hour too fast, it had already struck six. The lapse of time was rendered the more unendurable to Mrs. Jerome by her wonder that Mr. Jerome could stay out in the garden with Lizzie in that thoughtless way, taking it so easily that tea-time was long past, and that, after all the trouble of getting down the best tea-things, Mr. Tryon would not come. This honour had been shown to Mr. Tryon, not at all because Mrs. Jerome had any high appreciation of his doctrine or of his exemplary activity as a pastor, but simply because he was a church clergyman, and as such was regarded by her with the same sort of exceptional respect that a white woman who had married a native of the Society Islands might be supposed to feel towards a white-skinned visitor from the land of her youth. For Mrs. Jerome had been reared a churchwoman, and having attained the age of thirty before she was married, had felt the greatest repugnance in the first instance to renouncing the religious forms in which she had been brought up. You know, she said in confidence to her church acquaintances, I wouldn't give no ear at all to Mr. Jerome at fust, but after all I begun to think as there was a many things worse nor going to chapel, and you'd better do that nor not pay your way. Mr. Jerome had a very pleasant manner with him, and there was never another as kept a gig and it make a settlement on me like him, chapel or no chapel. It seemed very odd to me for a long while, the preachin' without book and the standin' up to one long prayer, instead of changin' your posture. 
but la there's nothin as you mayn t get used to a time you can always sit down you know before the prayer's done the ministers say pretty nigh the same things as the church parsons by what i could ever make out and we're out a chapel in the morning a deal sooner nor they're out a church and as for pews ourns is a deal comfortabler nor any a milby church mrs jerome you perceive had not a keen susceptibility to shades of doctrine and it is probable that after listening to dissenting eloquence for thirty years she might safely have re-entered the establishment without performing any spiritual quarantine her mind apparently was of that non-porous flinty character which is not in the least danger from surrounding damp but on the question of getting start of the sun on the day's business and clearing her conscience of the necessary sum of meals and the consequent washing up as soon as possible so that the family might be well in bed at nine mrs jerome was susceptible and the present lingering pace of things united with mr jerome's unaccountable obliviousness was not to be borne any longer so she rang the bell for sally goodness me sally go into the garden and see after your master tell him it's a goin on for six and mr tryan'll never think o comin now and it's time we got tea over and he's lettin lizzie stain her frock i expect among them strawberry beds make her come in this minute no wonder mr jerome was tempted to linger in the garden for though the house was pretty and well deserved its name the white house the tall damask roses that clustered over the porch being thrown into relief by rough stucco of the most brilliant white yet the garden and orchards were mr jerome's glory as well they might be and there was nothing in which he had a more innocent pride peace to a good man's memory all his pride was innocent than in conducting a hitherto uninitiated visitor over his grounds and making him in some degree aware of the incomparable advantages possessed by the inhabitants of the white house in the matter of red-streaked apples russets northern greens excellent for baking swan-egg pears and early vegetables to say nothing of flowering shrubs pink hawthorns lavender bushes more than ever mrs jerome could use and in short a superabundance of everything that a person retired from business could desire to possess himself or to share with his friends the garden was one of those old-fashioned paradises which hardly exist any longer except as memories of our childhood no finical separation between flower and kitchen garden there no monotony of enjoyment for one sense to the exclusion of another but a charming paradisiacal mingling of all that was pleasant to the eyes and good for food the rich flower border running along every walk with its endless succession of spring flowers anemones auriculas wallflowers sweet williams campanulas snapdragons and tiger lilies had its taller beauties such as moss and provence roses varied with espalier apple trees the crimson of a carnation was carried out in the lurking crimson of the neighboring strawberry beds you gathered a moss rose one moment and a bunch of currants the next you were in a delicious fluctuation between the scent of jasmine and the juice of gooseberries then what a high wall at one end flanked by a summer-house so lofty that after ascending its long flight of steps you could see perfectly well there was no view worth looking at what alcoves and garden-seats in all directions 
and along one side what a hedge, tall and firm and unbroken like a green wall. It was near this hedge that Mr. Jerome was standing when Sally found him. He had set down the basket of strawberries on the gravel, and had lifted up little Lizzie in his arms to look at a bird's nest. Lizzie peeped, and then looked at her grandpa with round blue eyes, and then peeped again. "'Do you see it, Lizzie?' he whispered. "'Yes,' she whispered in return, putting her lips very near Grandpa's face. At this moment Sally appeared. "'Eh, eh, Sally, what's the matter? Is Mr. Tryan come?' "'No, sir, and Mrs. says she's sure he won't come now, and she wants you to come in and have tea. To your heart, Miss Lizzie, you've stained your pinafore, and I shouldn't wonder if it's gone through to your frock. There'll be fine work. Come along with me, do.' "'Nay, nay, nay, we've done no harm. We've done no harm, have we, Lizzie? The wash-tub'll make all right again.' Sally, regarding the wash-tub from a different point of view, looked sourly serious and hurried away with Lizzie, who trotted submissively along, her little head in eclipse under a large nankin bonnet, while Mr. Jerome followed leisurely with his full, broad shoulders in rather a stooping posture and his large, good-natured features and white locks shaded by a broad-brimmed hat. "'Mr. Jerome, I wonder at you,' said Mrs. Jerome, in a tone of indignant remonstrance, evidently sustained by a deep sense of injury, as her husband opened the parlour door. "'When will you leave off inviting people to meals and not letting them know the time? I'll answer for it. You never said a word to Mr. Tryan as we should take tea at five o'clock. It's just like you.' "'Nay, nay, Susan,' answered the husband in a soothing tone. "'There's nothing amiss. I told Mr. Tryan as we took tea at five punctual. Mayhap summit's a detaining on him. He's a deal to do, and to think on, remember.' "'Why, it struck six of the kitchen already. It's nonsense to look for him coming now. So we may as well ring for the urn. Now Sally's got the heater in the fire, we may as well have the urn in, though he doesn't come.' I never seed the like o' you, Mr. Jerome, for axing people and giving me the trouble o' getting things down and having crumpets made, and after all they don't come. I shall have to wash every one of these tea-things myself, for there's no trust in Sally. She'd break a fortiny crockery in no time. But why will you give yourself such trouble, Susan? Our everyday tea-things would ha' done as well for Mr. Tryan, and they're a deal convenienter to hold. "'Yes, that's just your way, Mr. Jerome. You're always a-findin' fault wi' my chaney, because I bought it myself afore I was married. But let me tell you, I knowed how to choose chaney if I didn't know how to choose a husband.' "'And where's Lizzie? You've never left her o' the garden by herself, with her white frock on and clean stockings.' "'Be easy, my dear Susan, be easy. Lizzie's come in with Sally. She's having her pinafore took off, I'll be bound. Ah, there's Mr. Tryan a-comin' through the gate.' Mrs. Jerome began hastily to adjust her damask napkin and the expression of her countenance for the reception of the clergyman, and Mr. Jerome went out to meet his guest, whom he greeted outside the door. "'Mr. Tryan, how do you do, Mr. Tryan? Welcome to the White House. I'm glad to see you, sir. I'm glad to see you.' If you had heard the tone of mingled goodwill, veneration, and condolence in which this greeting was uttered, even without seeing the face that completely harmonized with it, you would have no difficulty in inferring the ground notes of Mr. Jerome's character. To a fine ear that tone said as plainly as possible, 
whatever recommends itself to me thomas jerome as piety and goodness shall have my love and honour ah friends this pleasant world is a sad one too isn't it let us help one another let us help one another and it was entirely owing to this basis of character not at all from any clear and precise doctrinal discrimination that mr jerome had very early in life become a dissenter in his boyish days he had been thrown where dissent seemed to have the balance of piety purity and good works on its side and to become a dissenter seemed to him identical with choosing god instead of mammon that race of dissenters is extinct in these days when opinion has got far ahead of feeling and every chapel-going youth can fill our ears with the advantages of the voluntary system the corruptions of a state church and the scriptural evidence that the first christians were congregationalists mr jerome knew nothing of this theoretic basis for dissent and in the utmost extent of his polemical discussion he had not gone further than to question whether a christian man was bound in conscience to distinguish christmas and easter by any peculiar observance beyond the eating of mince pies and cheesecakes it seemed to him that all seasons were alike good for thanking god departing from evil and doing well whereas it might be desirable to restrict the period for indulging in unwholesome forms of pastry mr jerome's dissent being of this simple non-polemical kind it is easy to understand that the report he heard of mr tryan as a good man and a powerful preacher who was stirring the hearts of the people had been enough to attract him to the paddyford church and that having felt himself more edified there than he had of late been under mr stickney's discourses at salem he had driven thither repeatedly in the sunday afternoons and had sought an opportunity of making mr tryan's acquaintance the evening lecture was a subject of warm interest with him and the opposition mr tryan met with gave that interest a strong tinge of partisanship for there was a store of irascibility in mr jerome's nature which must find a vent somewhere and in so kindly and upright a man could only find it in indignation against those whom he held to be enemies of truth and goodness mr tryan had not hitherto been to the white house but yesterday meeting mr jerome in the street he had at once accepted the invitation to tea saying there was something he wished to talk about he appeared worn and fatigued now and after shaking hands with mrs jerome threw himself into a chair and looked out on the pretty garden with an air of relief what a nice place you have here mr jerome i've not seen anything so quiet and pretty since i came to milby on paddyford common where i live you know the bushes are all sprinkled with soot and there's never any quiet except in the dead of night dear heart dear heart that's very bad and for you too as have to study wouldn't it be better for you to be somewhere more out in the country like oh no i should lose so much time in going to and fro and besides i like to be among the people i've no face to go and preach resignation to those poor things in their smoky air and comfortless homes when i come straight from every luxury myself there are many things quite lawful for other men which a clergyman must forego if he would do any good in a manufacturing population like this here the preparations for tea were crowned by the simultaneous appearance of lizzie and the crumpet 
it is a pretty surprise when one visits an elderly couple to see a little figure enter in a white frock with a blonde head as smooth as satin round blue eyes and a cheek like an apple blossom a toddling little girl is a centre of common feeling which makes the most dissimilar people understand each other and mr tryan looked at lizzie with that quiet pleasure which is always genuine here we are here we are said proud grandpapa you didn't think we'd got such a little gal as this did you mr tryan why it seems but the other day since her mother was just such another this is our little lizzie this is come and shake hands with mr tryan lizzie come lizzie advanced without hesitation and put out one hand while she fingered her coral necklace with the other and looked up into mr tryan's face with a reconnoitring gaze he stroked the satin head and said in his gentlest voice how do you do lizzie will you give me a kiss she put up her little bud of a mouth and then retreating a little and glancing down at her frock said ditted my new frock i put it on tud you would tumming tally ted you wouldn't look at it hush hush lizzie little gals must be seen and not heard said mrs jerome while grandpapa winking significantly and looking radiant with delight at lizzie's extraordinary promise of cleverness set her up on her high cane chair by the side of grandma who lost no time in shielding the beauties of the new frock with a napkin well now mr tryan said mr jerome in a very serious tone when tea had been distributed let me hear how you're a-goin on about the lecture when i was in the town yesterday i heard as there was persecuting schemes a being laid against you i fear me those rascals'll make things very unpleasant to you i have no doubt they will attempt it indeed i quite expect there will be a regular mob got up on sunday evening as there was when the delegates returned on purpose to annoy me and the congregation on our way to church ah they're capable of anything such men as dempster and bud and tomlinson backs em with money though he can't with brains however dempster's lost one client by his wicked doin's and i'm deceived if he won't lose more nor one i little thought mr tryan when i put my affairs into his hands twenty year ago this michaelmas as he was to turn out a persecutor a religion i never lighted on a cliverer promisinger young man nor he was then they talked o his being fond of a extry glass now and then but never nothin like what he's come to since and it's headpiece you must look for in a lawyer mr tryan it's headpiece his wife too was always an uncommon favourite o mine poor thing i hear sad stories about her now but she's druv to it she's druv to it mr tryan a tender-hearted woman to the poor she is as ever lived and as pretty spoken a woman as you need wish to talk to yes i'd always a likin for dempster and his wife spite o everything but as soon as ever i heerd o that diligate business i says says i that man shall have no more to do with my affairs it may put me to inconvenience but i'll encourage no man as persecutes religion he is evidently the brain and hand of the persecution said mr tryan there may be a strong feeling against me in a large number of the inhabitants it must be so from the great ignorance of spiritual things in this place but i fancy there would have been no formal opposition to the lecture if dempster had not planned it i am not myself the least alarmed at anything he can do he will find i am not to be cowed or driven away by insult or personal danger 
God has sent me to this place, and by his blessing I'll not shrink from anything I may have to encounter in doing his work among the people. But I feel it right to call on all those who know the value of the gospel to stand by me publicly. I think, and Mr. Lander agrees with me, that it will be well for my friends to proceed with me in a body to the church on Sunday evening. Dempster, you know, has pretended that almost all the respectable inhabitants are opposed to the lecture. Now, I wish that falsehood to be visibly contradicted. What do you think of the plan? I have to-day been to see several of my friends, who will make a point of being there to accompany me, and will communicate with others on the subject. I'll make one, Mr. Tryan, I'll make one. You shall not be wanting in any support as I can give. Before you come to it, sir, Milby was a dead and dark place. You are the fust man of the church, to my knowledge, as has brought the word of God home to the people, and I'll stand by you, sir, I'll stand by you. I'm a dissenter, Mr. Tryan. I've been a dissenter ever since I was fifteen year old. But show me good i' the church, and I'm a churchman too. When I was a boy, I lived at Tilston. You mayn't know the place. The best part of the land there belonged to Squire Sandeman. He'd a club foot, had Squire Sandeman. Lost a deal of money by canal shares. Well, sir, as I was saying, I lived at Tilston, and the rector there was a terrible drinkin' fox-huntin' man. You never seed such a parish o' your time for wickedness. Milby's nothin' to it. Well, sir, my father was a workin' man, and couldn't afford to give me ony edication. So I went to a night school, as was kept by a dissenter, one Jacob Wright. And it was from that man, sir, as I got my little schoolin' and my knowledge o' religion. I went to chapel with Jacob. He was a good man, was Jacob and to chapel I've been ever since. But I'm no enemy of the church, sir, when the church brings light to the ignorant and the sinful, and that's what you're a-doin', Mr. Tryan. Yes, sir, I'll stand by you. I'll go to church with you on Sunday evening. You'd far better stay at home, Mr. Jerome, if I may give my opinion, interposed Mrs. Jerome. It's not as I haven't every respect for you, Mr. Tryan, but Mr. Jerome will do you no good by his interfering. Dissenters are not at all looked on him, Milby, and he's as nervous as ever he can be. He'll come back as ill as ill, and never let me have a wink of sleep all night. Mrs. Jerome had been frightened at the mention of a mob, and her retrospective regard for the religious communion of her youth by no means inspired her with the temper of a martyr. Her husband looked at her with an expression of tender and grieved remonstrance, which might have been that of the patient patriarch on the memorable occasion when he rebuked his wife. "'Susan, Susan, let me beg on you not to oppose me and put stumblin'-blocks i' the way o' doin' what's right. I can't give up my conscience. Let me give up what else I may.' "'Perhaps,' said Mr. Tryan, feeling slightly uncomfortable, since you are not very strong, my dear sir, it will be well, as Mrs. Jerome suggests, that you should not run the risk of any excitement. Say no more, Mr. Tryan, I'll stand by you, sir. It's my duty. It's the cause of God, sir. It's the cause of God. Mr. Tryan obeyed his impulse of admiration and gratitude, and put out his hand to the white-haired old man, saying, Thank you, Mr. Jerome. Thank you. Mr. Jerome grasped the proffered hand in silence, and then threw himself back in his chair, 
casting a regretful look at his wife, which seemed to say, Why don't you feel with me, Susan? The sympathy of this simple-minded old man was more precious to Mr. Tryan than any mere onlooker could have imagined. To persons possessing a great deal of that facile psychology which prejudges individuals by means of formulae, and casts them, without further trouble, into duly lettered pigeonholes, the evangelical curate might seem to be doing simply what all other men like to do, carrying out objects which were identified not only with his theory, which is but a kind of secondary egoism, but also with the primary egoism of his feelings. Opposition may become sweet to a man when he has christened it persecution, a self-obtrusive, over-hasty reformer complacently disclaiming all merit, while his friends call him a martyr, has not in reality a career the most arduous to the fleshly mind. But Mr. Tryan was not cast in the mould of the gratuitous martyr. With a power of persistence which had been often blamed as obstinacy, he had an acute sensibility to the very hatred or ridicule he did not flinch from provoking. Every form of disapproval jarred him painfully, and though he fronted his opponents manfully, and often with considerable warmth of temper, he had no pugnacious pleasure in the contest. It was one of the weaknesses of his nature to be too keenly alive to every harsh wind of opinion, to wince under the frowns of the foolish, to be irritated by the injustice of those who could not possibly have the elements indispensable for judging him rightly, and with all this acute sensibility to blame, this dependence on sympathy, he had for years been constrained into a position of antagonism. No wonder, then, that good old Mr. Jerome's cordial words were balm to him. He had often been thankful to an old woman for saying, God bless you, to a little child for smiling at him, to a dog for submitting to be patted by him. Tea being over by this time, Mr. Tryan proposed a walk in the garden as a means of dissipating all recollection of the recent conjugal dissidence. Little Lizzie's appeal, me go, Ganpa, could not be rejected, so she was duly bonneted and pinafored, and then they turned out into the evening sunshine. Not Mrs. Jerome, however. She had a deeply meditated plan of retiring ad interim to the kitchen and washing up the best tea things, as a mode of getting forward with the sadly retarded business of the day. "'This way, Mr. Tryan, this way,' said the old gentleman. "'I must take you to my pastor fust and show you our cow, the best milker in the county.' And see here at these back buildings how convenient the dairy is. I planned it every bit myself. And here I've got my little carpenter's shop and my blacksmith's shop. I do no end of jobs here myself. I never could bear to be idle, Mr. Tryan. I must always be at something or other. It was time for me to lay by business and make room for younger folks. I'd got money enough with only one daughter to leave it to, and I says to myself, says I, it's time to leave off moitherin' myself with this world so much, and give more time to thinkin' of another. But there's a many hours atween gettin' up and lyin' down, and thoughts are no cumber. You can move about with a good many on em in your head. See, here's the pastor. A very pretty pasture it was, 
where the large spotted short-horned cow quietly chewed the cud as she lay and looked sleepily at her admirers a daintily trimmed hedge all around dotted here and there with a mountain ash or a cherry tree i've a good bit more land besides this worth your while to look at but mayhap it's further nor you'd like to walk now bless you i've welly an acre of potato ground yonders i've a good big family to supply you know here mr jerome winked and smiled significantly and that puts me in mind mr tryan of summat i wanted to say to you clergymen like you i know see a deal more poverty in that than other folks and have a many claims on em more nor they can well meet and if you'll make use o my purse any time or let me know where i can be a any help i'll take it very kind on you thank you mr jerome i will do so i promise you i saw a sad case yesterday a collier a fine broad-chested fellow about thirty was killed by the falling of a wall in the paddiford colliery i was in one of the cottages near when they brought him home on a door and the shriek of the wife has been ringing in my ears ever since there are three little children happily the woman has her loom so she will be able to keep out of the workhouse but she looks very delicate give me her name mr tryan said mr jerome drawing out his pocket-book i'll call and see her deep was the fountain of pity in the good old man's heart he often ate his dinner stintingly oppressed by the thought that there were men women and children with no dinner to sit down to and would relieve his mind by going out in the afternoon to look for some need that he could supply some honest struggle in which he could lend a helping hand that any living being should want was his chief sorrow that any rational being should waste was the next sally indeed having been scolded by master for a too lavish use of sticks in lighting the kitchen fire and various instances of recklessness with regard to candle ends considered him as mean as anything but he had as kindly a warmth as the morning sunlight and like the sunlight his goodness shone on all that came in his way from the saucy rosy-cheeked lad whom he delighted to make happy with a christmas box to the pallid sufferers up dim entries languishing under the tardy death of want and misery it was very pleasant to mr tryan to listen to the simple chat of the old man to walk in the shade of the incomparable orchard and hear the story of the crops yielded by the red street apple-tree and the quite embarrassing plentifulness of the summer pears to drink in the sweet evening breath of the garden as they sat in the alcove and so for a short interval to feel the strain of his pastoral task relaxed perhaps he felt the return to that task through the dusty roads all the more painfully perhaps something in that quiet shady home had reminded him of the time before he had taken on him the yoke of self-denial the strongest heart will faint sometimes under the feeling that enemies are bitter and that friends only know half its sorrows the most resolute soul will now and then cast back a yearning look in treading the rough mountain path away from the greensward and laughing voices of the valley however it was in the nine o'clock twilight that evening when mr tryan had entered his small study and turned the key in the door he threw himself into the chair before his writing-table and heedless of the papers there leaned his face low on his hand and moaned heavily 
it is apt to be so in this life i think while we are coldly discussing a man's career sneering at his mistakes blaming his rashness and labelling his opinions he is evangelical and narrow or latitudinarian and pantheistic or anglican and supercilious that man in his solitude is perhaps shedding hot tears because his sacrifice is a hard one because strength and patience are failing him to speak the difficult word and do the difficult deed. End of chapter 8 of Janet's Repentance